welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, uh, and we're going to be in verse 8 uh, through 10 today. By way of review, uh, we're, we're in week three of this series, and uh, if you remember week one was this important idea of grace and peace. Paul opens his letter with grace and peace. The grace of God, this initiative of grace that Jesus would come and offer uh, grace to us, and which then, of course, um, following that is peace, peace within ourselves, peace with one another, peace in our world, peace with God. Uh, last week, Paul talked about suffering and comfort and the importance of um, that God visits us and finds us in the midst of our suffering and then invites us and our lives to be a part of the comfort that comes to others, which is, again, this, this, uh, this invitation of grace that God offers us. And so this morning, uh, we will keep going, looking at verses 8 to 10. So if you would stand, and we'll read the scriptures, and we will jump in. Paul says this in verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. Pray with me. God, uh, week after week after week, we gather in this place, and we do so uh, for lots of reasons. One being that we anticipate meeting with you, that uh, you say that you are with your people when they gather. And so, God, those who uh, call themselves followers of Jesus and others, we gather in this place, and uh, God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, you would visit us, that you would be near us, that you would speak to us, that we would be open, our hearts would be open to hear whatever it is that you would have to say to us this morning. So we offer uh, these thoughts, these songs, these prayers, our hearts, ourselves to you. Uh, in this place we pray and all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat if you would. Uh, this has nothing to do with anything, but I just really wanted to share this. Last night I, um, I was sitting at the table and Lyndon and Dahlia, our two youngest, were, were playing, and uh, they were playing this game where they were running from the upstairs, down the stairs, and around, and they were going to multiple doors in the house. Uh, at one point, Lyndon's leading the charge, and she runs around into the kitchen and nearly falls over the open uh, dishwasher door, and they're just having, you know, they're cackling and laughing and having all sorts of fun. Well, I didn't realize what was happening. I was sort of in one of those places where you hear the noise, but you don't hear the noise. Men, do you know what I'm talking about? Ladies, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes, right? So, and then it dawns on me what they're doing. They're running down the stairs and they're saying, fire, 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 and like running to different exits. And I thought to myself, this might not be the best idea on the world. And so I stop and I said, Lyndon, I'm not really sure I like this game. And she says, dad, this isn't a game. It's a fire drill. (laughs) At which point I said, you're absolutely right. This is a fire drill. Oh, gosh. So, like I said, it has nothing to do with anything, but one of those moments where I, I literally, like, got to my computer, wrote it down, like, hopefully never to forget those kinds of moments when your kids say things, and you're just like, oh, my gosh, that was awesome. Laugh out loud funny. So, uh, Paul, Second Corinthians, here we go. Um, we are sort of like ancient historians in some way. 
You may not think of yourselves as such, but when we come to a text like this, it's as if we're looking back through thousands of years of history, right? And we're looking back on a person who wrote a letter to a small group of people in a particular place in the world, and we're trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Now, the book of Acts helps us in a lot of ways. Acts is the chronicles of Paul's missionary journeys and the beginnings of the church, of which this is a part. But we don't have, really, um, we have a large chunk of information that's missing that Paul references here in these verses. It's as if Paul has gone into a house, and he's fine, he's well, he's able, all things are well, uh, you know, no blood, no bruises, no anything, and he comes out of the house and he's just beaten to pieces. He's bloodied, and we have no idea what's happened, how it happened, who was there, why it happened. This instance where Paul says about, we went to Asia and we experienced these trials and these tribulations, this suffering, to the point of death. We thought we was going to die. We thought we were uh, like on death row. Uh, there's really no information about what's happened to Paul. Acts doesn't help us at all. Uh, we know that he was in, in Ephesus and he was on his way. Ephesus is over here in the Mediterranean. He's on his way down and over to Corinth. And somewhere in the midst of that, he has this experience. So we're sort of these ancient historians looking back, trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. This morning, what I want to do is I want to look at just a couple of things. One, why is it important that Paul mentions these sufferings? He says to these people, we do not want you to be uninformed. We want you, I want you, Timothy and I want you to know, Church of Corinth, that we have experienced these sufferings, these trials, almost unto death. We thought it was over. Why is it important that he even says that, that he mentions that? Then I want to dig in a little deeper to that so that clause. I don't know if you caught that in the passage where it says, these happened, so that. Uh, I want to dig into that a little bit more. We talked a little bit about it last week, but I want to camp here for a bit because this is a really, really, really important um, lens through which we understand and read the text. And then lastly, just a challenge about uh, these last words that he says, on him we have set our hope. So are you ready? Here we go. Um, why The importance of being honest about faith. Why is it important that Paul shares this information? Two reasons I want to explore. One is kind of Paul's context, and then one is for our context. For Paul, you have to remember, this is before, uh, or it's, it's after, it's like the turn of the, the you know, time, the B.C. and A.D., right? Uh, and this is in about 50 A.D. In the ancient world, suffering equals the gods are against you. So when you suffer in the ancient world, you have some sort of deformation or some sort of health issue or something happens, a uh, trial, a tribute, something comes to you. The assumption that is sort of carte blanche on the table is the gods are against you. Uh, this is an interesting idea when you start thinking about the way the Bible is written and some of the things that happen in the Bible. Um, this idea that either the gods are against you or that you've sinned. For some reason, you've done something to deserve whatever it is that you've got. Or your parents did something to deserve whatever it is that you've got. If we think back to John chap, uh, John's gospel, in John 9, the, the, a group of people bring Jesus, a guy who's been born blind, if you remember this story. We're going to come back to it in a minute. But they say, who, who sinned, his parents or him? Right? The assumption is that this guy sinned or his parents sinned because he's blind. Or the other one is that... The gods are against you. The gods are not favoring, favorable towards you. One guy uh, named Pliny the Elder, who was a Greek philosopher, who happens to be the guy who named the hop plant, if you didn't know that. Do you guys know what hops are? Hops are a very important ingredient for beer. 
And uh, I'm a home brewer. There are four ingredients for beer, water, barley, hops, and yeast. Pliny the Elder is the guy who's credited to sort of naming the hop plant. So we thank, ye, we thank thee, Pliny, for this. Um, he was also, it's also the name of one of the best beers in the entire world. It's called Pliny the Elder. It's made in California. At any rate, um, he's also known for saying this, that a supreme being, whatever it be, pays heed to human affairs is a ridiculous notion. I mean, look at this, right? That a supreme being, the gods, that they would pay attention or heed to human affairs is a ridiculous idea. This is the assumption working in culture. That the gods have no concern for you, your plight, your family, humanity in general. Many believe that the gods were completely detached from human affairs. They were completely disinterested in what was happening. Um, like God was this watchmaker who built the world as a watch, wound it up, and then just walks away. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. This is one idea. Or even worse, that God is not only disinterested, but annoyed by our affairs. You've heard maybe some of these ideas in Greek mythology or some of the creation accounts of the ancient Near East. There are many, by the way. The, the Hebrew Bible is not the only one. But in many of these accounts, the gods or the God is sort of annoyed, disinterested, um, or, or that humanity was the byproduct of some sort of heavenly war or chaos that happened in the heavenlies, or that humans were the slaves of the gods and whatever the, the, the gods wanted, they were sort of the slave, the hum, humans were slaves to them. So this idea is a far cry from the one that the scriptures offers, right? Think about the Exodus story. And God heard the cry of the people in, Is in, in Egypt, the Israelites. God heard their cry. Not only did God hear their cry, but God went to them, sent Moses to rescue them. So Paul, this is the assumption at play in culture. Paul wants to say there's another option here. There's something far different from that that we know about Jesus and about the scriptures. Paul wants to push back on this because of the work of Jesus. And we know God to be very different than the views of culture in that day. In fact, that this is a God who is not disinterested, but who is intimately involved and passionate about and in love with that which God has made. That suffering is not a byproduct of sin all the time, but rather that in the economy of the kingdom, and actually, it's actually where and how God's strength and power is on display through resurrection. It's the irony, the paradox of resurrection. That in and through weakness and death, God's strength is manifest. So those in Corinth... Remember, Paul wrote this book to this group of people in Corinth. There's a group of them who are challenging Paul's authority. They're saying he's not an apostle. He has no authority as an apostle. He doesn't speak on behalf of God. Why would they say that? Well, think about Paul's life, right? He tells about this in the book of Acts. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten like 39 lashes or 40 lashes. 40 lashes minus one. He's been bitten by a snake. He's, he's nearly died. He's been imprisoned. So these people are saying, Paul can't be real. He can't have authority. God cannot be favoring this person because all these horrible things are happening. His weakness and his suffering is the actual confirmation that he's not an apostle. Right? That's what they're saying. So why does Paul think it's important to say to these people, you, you should know, friends, that we have suffered a great deal, nearly to death. He's playing into their trap. Or is he? Is he saying that actually... This is how we know 
that God has manifested himself in our life, in my life. Because we have been, in our weakness, God has been made to be strong. God has been seen to be strong. God has manifest as powerful. God has resurrected. God has redeemed, restored, saved uh, us in the midst of this. And so Paul says, this isn't the confirmation that I'm a fraud, but actually this is the confirmation that the work of the gospel and the work of Jesus and the resurrection is at work in my life. So he says, we don't want you to be uninformed that we have suffered a great trial to the the point of death. And it is this God of resurrection that has met us there and now has manifest himself in our lives. And so this suffering that you see and that we make plain and simple for you all to see is actually confirmation of God's work in our life, not the confirmation that I'm a fraud. So he says, you should know about this. You really should. Now, for us, what does this mean for us? If this is why Paul says this, what, why is it important for us to think about faith and doubt and suffering and sort of leaning into those things or being honest and authentic and open about them? Paul says to these people, hey, we have suffered to the point where I thought it was over. Like I despaired life itself. Paul the apostle says this, despaired life itself. I'm guessing if I were to take a poll of the room, and, and, and the poll it would be something to the effect of uh, how comfortable are you in being really open and honest about faith and doubt and pain and suffering with God and with one another? My guess is, my hunch is, that for many of us, we hold those cards pretty close to the chest, as my grandpa once said. Grandpa, why do you always beat me? Well, it's because I can see your cards. <laughs> hold them close to the chest, sonny. If I were to take a poll, I'm guessing that our ability to be honest and authentic about faith and doubt and pain and suffering with God and with each other, that that would be a pretty low score on the scale. We're so tied up in our sort of Sunday best and our, our belts are cinched so tight and our corsets are... I've been watching down Navi. <laughs> Mr. Bates... Any Downton Abbey fans in the room here? Are there any other men who watch Downton Abbey? Please raise your hands. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Thank you. I see that hand up there. Man. (laughs) Oh, it's usually Lost or 24 or, you know, Sons of Anarchy or something. But this one, the wife and I watched together, and it's been lovely. We... The other day, I'm not kidding you, we watched four episodes in one day. We watched one over lunch, and then we watched three. We were up to, like, midnight, people. We didn't even stay up till midnight for the new year. We did for Downton Abbey, though. So our belts are cinched so tight. Or, you know, it's like we, we're, everything's so tight and wound up around religion and Christianity that we, we, heaven forbid that we would ever experience you know, joy that God brings or that, that, we, that we gain from following this Jesus. But it's all sort of like, yep, you know, keep it close, smile, everybody's good. I'm fine, fine, fine. Push the fine button. How are you? Fine, 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 right? And this is kind of how we wander around. And yet, look at what Paul says in verses 8 and 9. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Paul holds nothing back here. He tells them that he despaired life itself and he thought he was going to die. And so I just want to stop here for a moment and just say, maybe you need permission in a religious setting, in a church setting, in a Christian culture, to say, as John Mayer once said, say whatever it is you need to say, right? <laughs> got Down Nabby, we got John Mayer, just 
the hits keep on coming. But I want to give you permission to go to God and say whatever it is that is on your heart. That it's not just that we bring our thank you, gratitude, your sacrifice was amazing, you know, sort of these kinds of, which is good and we should. But there are times when you need to just throw out a four-letter word at God and let him have it. Go for it. What are you, what's he, what's going to happen, right? I mean, read the Psalms and you read some of these prayers, prayers that David prayed, they're, they're rants, people. They're rants. And he just tees one up and lets God have it. Honesty and authenticity about pain and suffering and trial and tribulation and anger and grief. It is okay to bring that to God. And to say anything that is on your heart. And I want to say as a community, Awaken says yes to that. That wherever you are, however you come here on Sundays or your life groups or missional communities, that, and friends, right, okay, I'm assuming that we all recognize that there are social cues and places and times when things are more appropriate than others and things may in fact be inappropriate. Yeah, we have to walk that line. We have to figure out that balance. But as a general rule, we want to say yes to being authentic and honest about faith and doubt and anger and pain and grief and joy and all of these things that we experience. These should all be integrated into our experience of who God is. There's two words up here that you might see, authenticity and holistic, okay? That's what I'm talking about. That's what we mean when we say that. So if you need it, permission granted to be honest and open and authentic about whatever is in there, whatever is happening, whatever's going on. Let's take a look, a little deeper look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Indeed, we received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God. Some of your translations may even say, This happened so that. And I want to look at this one little phrase that I think is a game changer. So that. Here are a couple of different versions of trans, uh, translations of verse 9. I read the one in NIV, right? But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves. Here's the New King James. Yes, we had this sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, or but in God. And then the, the New uh, Re- Revised Standard Version uses this so that. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death so that we would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, if you just read the text, and many people do, in each case, it would appear at face value that God is the one causing the sentence of death, right? That it's God who brings this to Paul. Whatever trial or suffering or tribulation that he's experienced, when you read the text, it it, it appears, it seems that it's God who brings this to Paul, that this is a part of God's big plan, So God brought this about, and so all of the bad things that happen in our lives are so that, dot, dot, dot. Maybe there's a lesson that you need to learn. You may have heard this before, right? Uh, I cannot tell you the number of times I have heard stories about some tragedy that befalls someone, and someone in good conscience and with even a pure heart and pure motive says things like, you know, God must have needed, needed your son more than us. 
in the case of a, the, the death of a child. Or there, there must be something here that God wants you to learn in your cancer. Or there must be something that's a part of God's plan that he would bring this to you. John Calvin in his institute says this, we are not brought to real submission until we have been laid low by the crushing hand of God. I'm going to read that again and I want you to listen very, very carefully. We are not brought to real submission until we have been laid low by the crushing hand of God. One commentator takes that and comments further and says, we frequently need a good dose of helplessness when we are reduced to extremities and stripped of all false self-confidence before we learn humility and open ourselves up to God's power. Guys, for many people, this understanding, this theology is problematic at best and crushing at worst. Whatever happens or happened, it happened for a reason. God only knows what it is. And whatever the reason is, it's for his glory and my good, even if I can't see it, which is fine until it's your husband that dies or it's your kid that gets cancer or you get cancer. It's fine to say that until it's like you and you're in the midst of it. It's fine to say that until you get a phone call on Friday that says one of your friends who you knew who had not turned 50, dies of a sudden heart attack playing broomball with his kids. Jay Substead, this guy volunteered in the youth group at the church that I worked at for six and a half years. Just a a beacon of health. This guy was like, he was ripped. I mean, the guy had a six pack. He could have killed me. He was unbelievably fit and just falls over dead. So that? So that what? To be clear, this is a very traceable trail of theology and a traceable trail of theologians who propagate this kind of understanding of who God is. I I, I want you to know. Now, obviously, I have very deep feelings about this, and we can disagree, okay? That's okay. That's part of what we want to say is open in this community. We can disagree on this. But I want you to know there are others within the wide stream of Orthodox Christianity that vehemently disagree with this way of understanding who God is. And I happen to be one of them. Why is this important? All of our beliefs presuppose a picture of God. Everything that you believe about God presupposes an image of God that you have. Where you, the question is, what is that image and can it be trusted? Many of us have images of God that can be traced back to things that have influenced our understanding of who God is that may or may not be helpful. We understand as God like a father or like a mother, and many of us have had horrible fathers or mothers. And so we then import these experiences of mom and dad into how we see God as father or mother, how we experience God. Gang, this is, this, this is a game changer. This is a really, really big deal. I submit to you that all of our beliefs about God must be consistent with the picture of God that we see in Jesus. So when we find a theology or an understanding of God that does not square with who Jesus is or what we know about Jesus or what Jesus taught about God, then it's back to the drawing board. 
So when we read a text and it says, so that, dot, 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 and the assumption then is that whatever it is that happened, God brought and is in, it's like a part of God's master plan, so that, dot, dot, dot. I don't think that squares with who Jesus is and what we know about God on the cross. In fact, in John 9, I'm going to argue that it's, it's actually quite clear that it's not what God, Jesus is saying. But hear this. All of our beliefs about God presuppose an image of God. And if that image of God does not square with what we know of Jesus and what we know about God from Jesus, then it's back to the drawing board. I want to submit. So let's look at one situation here. This is John chapter 9, and I'll warn you, Surgeon General's warning, theology nerd hats must go on here. So if you will, just bear with me for a moment. Put, on, you know, put your thinking caps on, screw the screws tighter, and let's get in this here. John 9, his disciples, uh, a blind guy comes to Jesus and his disciples ask, who sinned his father or his mother? So let's read this here. It's John 9, 1 through 3. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, right? This is the assumption that's, that's like right there. It's got to be either the God, you know, God's angry at him or somebody sinned, uh, his parents that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So here we have it again, right? So that. Now, we got to peel back the layers here to really get at what's going on. Because I want to suggest that this image of God does not square with who I see Jesus in and on the cross. Jesus says at one time, does your father want to give you a snake instead of bread? Does he want to give you stones? No, God's heart is not like that. God is like a father who wants to love you. So what's happening here? There's two words that become very, very crucial. They're on the screen next. Hina and Phenerothe. Uh, and these two words are the words that are translated, this happened so that, okay? The one on the left is a clause. It's called a Hina clause. And here's, here's the tricky part. There is a, a grammatical choice that's being made when John 9 is translated. And it all depends on what you think Jesus is doing. If Jesus is going along with the modern day assumptions, which are either this guy has sinned or God has sort of brought this upon them, then yeah, that's how you would translate it. But if you think Jesus is up to something else, new information comes available. The choice that's being made here is what to do with, call, it's called a horatory subjunctive, okay? And there's two ways you can translate this. It's a permissive clause or it's a purpose clause. So hina, this word, is either a permissive clause or it's a purpose clause. If it's a purpose clause, this happened so that. That's how you would translate it. If it's not, and I think there's every reason to believe that it's not, and other people argue this as well, I'm not the only one, argue this is a permissive clause, and it should be translated, but rather let, instead of so that. We know from extra-biblical sources and the Bible that the operating assumptions are that God caused this or that sin caused this. So when Jesus is asked the question, who sinned, his parents or him, he says, neither of them. And the translators say, it's the other option, so that God's glory would be shown. Or at least that's what they've led us to believe. A couple of questions we have to ask. Number one, why do we assume that Jesus plays their binary game where it's either this or that, black or white? Over and over and over again, when someone comes to Jesus in the Gospels and they give him an option and it's either A or B, black or white, left or right, either or, 
Jesus kind of shimmies his way through the trap and offers another option, doesn't he? He often says the kingdom of God is actually like this. Number two, the second question we have to ask is, what's the image of God that's presupposed in Jesus' answer? If the answer is, this happened so that God's glory would be shown, what presupposes that is an image of God that has God as the sort of master puppet player with all the strings bringing blindness on this man so that God's glory could be shown, as if God needs this guy to show off his glory. That's the image of God that's being presupposed by that answer. Back to the drawing board then, I would suggest. Is there another way to understand this? I think there is. If we have another option in this text to read it as a permissive clause and not a purpose clause, and we take into consideration what Jesus is up to, which is often to subvert the common ways of thinking about God that are present in culture, that are inaccurate and uninformed, this is what Jesus does all the time. If this is what he's doing, he's subverting what they're asking, What if Jesus is interested in subverting the kind of logic that would allow someone to conclude that God would arbitrarily make some man blind to simply show off his glory? What if the text reads this way? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, period. But let the work of God be shown in this man. And here's the internal monologue that I I would add to this in Jesus' head. Dumb question! Come on! I mean, honestly... Neither this guy nor his parents sinned. Are you, are you kidding me? Don't you know? What do you know about the father? Abba would never do this to somebody. He loves his children. This is a work of the enemy. But watch this, right? Not so that, like God brings blindness on this guy so that he can show his glory, but rather, this is a work of the enemy. Trace it all the way back to Eden and Genesis 3. This is not intended, but watch what happens when the resurrection power of God shows up. So, option two, I would suggest, of John 9, 3, we have an answer that presupposes a picture of God that's consistent with Jesus, that is well within the realm of grammar and language as a possibility. I'm all for it. Back to 2 Corinthians, right? Knowing what we know about Jesus and Jesus' answer in John 9, did God bring about Paul's suffering and trials so that? Or is God found in the midst of Paul's suffering and trials, which is very possibly a work of the enemy? I had a chance to ask somebody that I really respect on this issue uh, and, and about John 9 and 2 Corinthians, and here's what he wrote back. He said, now whether this applies to Paul's trials in Asia or not, I don't know. He sort of agrees and argues in a book this oratory clause piece. But he says, whether this applies to Paul, I'm not sure. Even if it doesn't, even if you translate it so that, it need not mean God was the one who sent the trials. I believe, and I suspect you do too, speaking to me, that God has a plan in place for every contingency that could ever happen. So whatever happens, God's been preparing a plan for it from the foundation of the world, just in case it happens. The so that of 2 Corinthians can therefore refer to a plan God brings to Paul's trials rather than a plan God had for bringing about Paul's trials. Why do I spend so much time on this? 
I said a couple of weeks ago, guys, that suffering and death will find us all. How we understand God and the heart of God in the midst of that is a game changer. How we respond to suffering and death when it happens to our friends and our family makes a great difference and it means a great deal. And I think it's important that we think through how we're to read and understand the heart of God. Is God the one who brings this? Does God make people have cancer so that something can happen? I would submit no. That is not what's happening. Now, again, we can disagree on this. This is, this is good, good theological discourse. But I want to offer just a, maybe another way to read it, another way to understand it. And let me wrap this up here this morning, and I'll, we'll close with this. In verse 10, Paul says this. On him we have set our hope. On him we have set our hope. Two metaphors that I think might be helpful. Has anybody ever played uh, Texas Hold'em? Anybody in the room? Yeah, I got into a Texas Hold'em phase in my, when I was a youth pastor. <laughs> I played with students. They were high schoolers, you know, smart, mature. And I lost all the time. I'm a bad poker player, I guess. But in Texas Hold'em, in poker, you have chips, right? And these chips have value. So you buy in with $10 and you get set amount of chips which correlate to value, okay? And then you get a hand of cards. And in poker, you bet whatever chips you want on your hand that you hold in your, or the, the hand of cards that you hold in your hands, close to the chest, of course. If you think that this hand is gonna win in the end, you bet a dollar or two dollars or five dollars or whatever. And there are moments along the way in a, in a hand of, in a, in a game of, of Hold'em where you bet the house, you, you bet the farm, and you take your chips and you put them, what's the phrase? All in. And it's as if to say, I believe that this hand is going to win at the end, at the end of the day, this is the one that's going to be the best. It's the one that will take all of your money too. I'm all in. And Paul, in this statement to the Corinthians, says, this is my interpretation, I am all in on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Paul says, I bet the farm. I bet the house. I tether my life to this anchor. And no matter how hard the wind blows or how big the waves will get, this anchor will hold. And this is what Paul says. And so I say to you this morning, many of you have said, Jesus, I'm all in. And I think that there's this possibility that we at times say, yeah, but that one I'm going to hang on to. I'm just going to sneak her back, you know, just like take that one chip, which means, which has the value of whatever in your own life. And it's like, that one I'm not quite sure about. Maybe it, you, you can see it in your head. Maybe you know what it is. And I want to just offer the possibility this morning or the, the time and the space to consider what does it mean for you to say, 
all in. I tether this wild and precious one life that I have to this anchor. Because friends, we all tether it to something. Nobody gets around this one. And the question is, what have you tethered your one wild and precious life to? And will it hold? Is it the hand that will win? Will you bet the house on it? This is what Paul says. On him, I have set my hope. I have anchored my life to this thing. This Jesus and this resurrection. I'm going to invite Ben to come and uh, he's going to offer a, a song this this morning that we have not sung here before. Uh, but when we heard it, uh, just felt like it was perfect for uh, closing our gathering this morning. And so I'm going to just uh, offer a word of prayer and then I invite you to just listen and let Ben sing this over us and for us and consider. Maybe Maybe you've pulled a couple chips back and it's time to consider everything. Everything, everything to you, God. And it's this anchor that you tether your life to. So pray with me. God, as we think about these things, as we think about who you are and the essence of who you are and what your heart looks like, would you speak to us now in these moments here God, for those considering what it, what it means to be all in, to, to tether their lives to this Jesus and this resurrection event. God, I pray that it would be one that is counted, that the cost would be counted, because it costs. You say that blessed is the man who gives up his life for that which he cannot lose. Gives up his life. Gives up her life for that which we cannot lose. Either that's true or it's not. And so we consider that today. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter by Awaken Community. See you next time.